listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville, and it's time for the Tuesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Williams Stationery, a family-owned full-service office supply store and delivery service, also retailing janitorial supplies and office furniture. Located at 112 West Main Street, downtown Grass Valley, since 1949. After the NPR headlines and local weather, we'll have this week's Water News with Steve Baker. Also, we'll have a report from NPR on Scotland and how they're reacting to the COVID situation there. And we'll have an edition of National Native News and Mark Cunaberti with a commentary. But first, NPR headlines followed by local weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Congressional leaders are citing progress in the latest round of negotiations on the next coronavirus relief bill. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports lawmakers are up against a deadline to reach a compromise on the bill and decide whether to attach it to a larger spending plan to avert a government shutdown on Friday. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says lawmakers will not break for the holiday recess until they reach a compromise. We're not leaving here without a COVID package. It's not going to happen. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer says the next round of relief funding can't wait. We need to pass COVID relief to help our fellow Americans get by until we eradicate this virus. McConnell and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi have been discussing the possibility of attaching a bipartisan relief measure to a larger spending bill that will keep the government funded through next year. But lawmakers are deadlocked on two major issues, including additional aid for state and local governments. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. In the latest example of a White House that refuses to accept Democrat Joe Biden's election victory, Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany today called yesterday's Electoral College vote just one step in the constitutional process. McEnany making her remarks after being asked by reporters whether President Trump now considers Biden to be the president-elect and whether he intends to invite him to the White House. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, meanwhile, congratulated the president-elect more than a month after the election today. Facebook says it's lifting its ban on political ads, but only for the Senate runoff races in Georgia. NPR's Shannon Bond reports the social network has come under pressure from the Democratic candidate's campaign. Facebook temporarily banned political ads to slow the spread of misinformation following the presidential election. But Democrats are frustrated. They haven't been able to use the biggest social network to reach voters ahead of Georgia's crucial runoff elections next month. The outcome of those races will determine which party controls the Senate. Facebook says it heard that frustration and will start accepting ads aimed at Georgia voters on Wednesday. That's an exception. It's keeping its temporary ban in place elsewhere. Meanwhile, Google, which had also banned political ads after the election, has started accepting them again. Facebook and Google are among NPR's financial supporters. Shannon Bond, NPR News. President Joe Biden has chosen one-time presidential contender and former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg to be his transportation secretary. That's according to a union official familiar with discussions who's confirmed the appointment to NPR. 
The 38-year-old Buttigieg was a breakout star of the primaries, a centrist who shared a victory in the nation's first caucus with Bernie Sanders. It confirmed he'll be the first openly gay person to serve in a permanent position as United States Cabinet Secretary. Stocks gained ground today on Wall Street. The Dow up 337 points. The Nasdaq rose 155 points today. You're listening to NPR. Canada's government is confirming it's contracted to receive up to 168,000 doses of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine before the end of the month. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau confirming deliveries could begin within the next 48 hours, pending approval by Canada's health regulator. Canadians began receiving vaccine shots by Pfizer and German company BioNTech on Monday. Vogue editor and Chief Anna Wintour has been promoted to the head of all content for the media company Condé Nast. The company which publishes Vogue, The New Yorker, Bon Appetit, Pitchfork, and more made the announcement today. NPR's Andrew Limbong reports Wintour is one of the most powerful voices in fashion. Anna Wintour will still oversee Vogue U.S. as she takes on her new role, Global Chief Content Officer for Condé Nast. In the statement announcing the news, Condé Nast CEO Roger Lynch said Wintour had an ability to stay ahead connecting to new audiences while cultivating some of today's brightest talent. Earlier this summer, black journalists spoke anonymously to the New York Times, saying Wintour favored thin, white, wealthy employees. Another Condé Nast title, Bon Appetit, was also caught up in its own scandal this summer for paying its employees of color less and their white counterparts. In the statement, Wintour says she hopes to use Condé Nast's global reach to, quote, tell the most important, inclusive, and inspiring stories of our time. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. The company behind the idea of providing urban helicopter taxis says it intends to go public. The announcement follows the move by Blade to merge with NASDAQ-listed Experience Investment Corporation. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. And taking a look at the weather, first here in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, looks like a low of 42 tonight, high of 55 tomorrow, mostly cloudy tomorrow with rain in the evening and all day Thursday. Sacramento, low of 33, high of 55, mostly cloudy tomorrow with rain on Thursday as well. And in Truckee, low of 15, high of 45, partly cloudy tomorrow and morning snow likely on Thursday. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Welcome back to KVMR, Steve. Oh, happy to be here. Uh, Steve, water was finally in the forecast this last weekend. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I know we're chuckling about it. Did you notice any statistics on rainfall? And how did they match up to what was expected? Well, you know, I, I did notice some statistics, and we received between one and two inches, depending on where you are in Grass Valley, Nevada City area. So uh, the rate of this precipitation was slow and easy, which is great for replenishing aquifers. But as far as our expectations in this particular storm event, you know, it it was uh, an underachiever. It didn't really happen as much as we wanted to. So that was unfortunate. Now, when you got above 6,000 feet this past weekend in the Sierras, oh, my God, it was a snowy paradise. It was beautiful up there and loved that white velvet. It was wonderful. So like most of uh, all the listeners, I was enjoying the pitter-patter of rain, and I was sipping on my cup of tea and loving every minute of it. So, 
it was still a great weekend. Yeah. Uh, well, what do you think of this year's uh, water amount so far? Well, I mean, most people can have can see this. It's it's a bit on the slow, on the slow start. Uh, we're not really seeing uh, a lot develop. The weather climate discussion blog said that this is the driest September December since at least the 1970s. And in other places of California, they're experiencing record dry starts to the season. So we're, you know, we're again underachieving from a seasonal standpoint as well. Well, I understand that water is even getting attention on Wall Street. Uh, oh. Tell us about this. Yeah, the Chicago uh, Mercantile Exchange is linking uh, to spot prices of water. Okay, contracts are linked to the NASDAQ Vellus California Water Index, and this uh, started trading just uh, this week. These, uh, these water contracts, they're expected to allow investors, uh, farmers, uh, the various funds and municipalities to basically bet on future availability of water. In other words, they're going to be betting with water scarcity. And, uh, of course, betting on our changing climate impacts how it also impacts our economic markets. So we end up tying the both together. Well, do you think California's water will be active on Wall Street? Right. Yeah, it is right now. It is right now. The California Water Index launched two years ago. And it's uh, based on the biggest and most active traded water markets in Southern California. So it's primarily in Southern California. There, there's a lot of money, money that circulates around water, as, as one would expect. I mean, look at the Delta conveyance issue, okay, as an example. Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, their board of directors voted to approve $59 million to fund the Delta tunnels. This happened on December 7th. So they're just slamming it. They're moving forward and a lot of money is being exchanged. And and this decision, you know, it's created a lot of pushback from Southern, Southern California taxpayers. They don't want to pay the bill to the environmentalists who see the, the, uh, the downside to removing water from the Delta and the tribal advocates. There, there are, are concerns that this huge amount of Sacramento and San Joaquin River water will hasten the extinction of uh, Sacramento River Spring and Fall Run Chinook Salmon. Central Valley steelhead, delta, and long, uh, longfin smelts, and, and some other species. So how this will actually impact the water markets, we will see. But we expect uh, negative things as far as, uh, as far as removing water from the delta. Well, do you think that monetizing water could actually happen here in the Sierra foothills? Well, first of all, we are really very lucky because Northern California receives two-thirds of the water that hits California. So we're abundant in water, and, and, because, uh, and then also because more than half our population are on water wells. So most of us are somewhat isolated from the direct impacts of Wall Street. But we still rely on the wonderful California agriculture that we have here. We, we still enjoy the beauty of the California landscape. And, of course, we're all connected with the social fabric of our state. So making a lot of water decisions based only on financial parameters, which typically is how the market works, uh, it'll likely change our lives. And it is what we don't consider when making water decisions that generates personal influences that we may not like so much, okay, like limitations of our water use, uh, the degradation of the environment, our property values will change and and. The cost of food, it, it just will change. So, so yes, indirectly, we can be impacted by the Wall Street water activity. 
in the meantime, we have a little rain coming up this week, I understand. That's right. Can't wait, although it doesn't sound like it's going to be very much. And then following that is going to be high pressure and dry from, from what I hear. But we, we're always hopeful for more rain. Okay, Steve. Thank you so much. You Talk to you next week. Uh-huh. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at stevebaker at operationunite.co. The ties that bind the United Kingdom together are straining. Part of it is Brexit. Part of it is the government's mishandling of the coronavirus. And the Scots are getting restless. For the first time, polls consistently show most Scots want independence from the UK. Here's NPR's Frank Langfitt in Edinburgh. This is John Craig. He's playing the alto sax. Craig also runs the Student Union at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Six years ago, he and most voters here voted against leaving the United Kingdom because Craig knew that leaving the UK would mean leaving the European Union and all the rich educational and performing opportunities it offered to musicians like him. We were promised during the 2014 referendum the only way to retain your membership of the EU is to vote no and stay within the UK. And we were also promised that no referendum would happen on EU membership. Well... We all know how that turned out. Britain held its Brexit referendum in 2016. Scotland voted overwhelmingly to remain in the EU. But England, by far the largest nation inside the United Kingdom, easily outvoted them. I hate admitting that I felt tricked, but absolutely, yeah, I definitely felt tricked. And I placed a lot of blame on myself for tying Scotland down to this. It took a lot of like self-reflection to not feel totally embarrassed of what had happened. If Scotland holds another independence referendum, polls suggest it will pass. A recent poll found a whopping 58% of likely voters back leaving the UK. The ruling Scottish National Party is running on its independence platform in elections to the regional parliament in May. If the party does well, as expected, it will press the British government for a second independence vote. Prime Minister Boris Johnson opposes the idea, which makes people like John Craig even angrier. I feel like my democratic right is being blocked within my own country. I, I have a democratic right to to ask for Scottish independence because that is the will that we have in recent polling, I feel like ignored as a citizen in the UK. Brexit isn't the only factor driving support for Scottish independence. Another is Boris Johnson. Under his leadership, the UK has recorded the most coronavirus deaths in all of Europe. Many Scots aren't impressed. He's a buffoon, totally out of his depth. I think he's in it purely for the power. I think he's a nut job. I think he's about as daft as your Trump. I don't have any respect for the guy. I do not trust Boris Johnson. That was Sandy Comfort, a retired lawyer in King Ucy in the Scottish Highlands. Jim Welsh, who works as an electrical technician offshore in the North Sea. And Farzana Hack, a pharmacist in the town of Dunfermline, northwest of Edinburgh. Hack voted against independence in 2014, but she'll vote for it if she gets another chance. In part because she thinks Johnson's a hypocrite. She cites the prime minister's refusal to fire his chief advisor after he drove across England in violation of a national lockdown earlier this year. We've been following the rules up here, and to be told that we could have broken the rules and it's fine and the government will just stand by you because he happens to be the chief aide was just ridiculous. It was heartbreaking for a lot of people when they learnt that they could have just jumped in the car and driven to their parents' house. Many in Scotland have also been disappointed in Johnson for making grandiose promises. 
We will have a test track and trace operation uh, that will be world-beating. That have either fizzled or failed. The Scottish government has also made mistakes, but Hack credits Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland's first minister and leader of the Scottish National Party, for being transparent with the public. She's prepared to come up and stand in front of journalists and take questions every day. And she's prepared to put her hands up when there's a mistake. I do not believe a word that Boris Johnson says. They have made a number of errors and not one person in his cabinet has taken responsibility. In a recent poll, seven out of ten Scots said they were satisfied with Sturgeon's performance, while more than three quarters were disappointed with Johnson's. Scotland and England have a long and bitter history. They fought dozens of battles over the centuries. One of the most famous battles was here in Bannockburn in 1314. That's when Robert the Bruce, King of the Scots, defeated the English. The sounds and images are recreated at the Visitor Center north of Edinburgh. Scotland eventually joined England in 1707, in part to profit off the colonies. Fiona Watson's a historian. Because the Scots were desperate to get into empire, and so that... Get in on the action. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you weren't going to be in there, you were not going to be anything. But some of the economic rationale that drove the relationship faded in the 20th century. You get the demise of the British Empire and the demise of the huge manufacturing that Scotland had been such a part of. So you're starting to see the economic benefits of union becoming less clear at a time when the British state was intruding. So all of these combine to see the beginnings, I think, of political Scottish nationalism. There are still big financial reasons for Scotland to stick with the United Kingdom. The UK provides a hefty annual subsidy to Scotland. And when the coronavirus hit... It guaranteed an additional $8.5 billion in funding. I don't want independence. Alex Jameson is a retired cop from Glasgow. I just think we're better together. I think we're stronger together. If we'd been independent when this epidemic happened, we'd be, we wouldn't have the money, the finance to uh, get ourselves through it. Back here in Edinburgh, pubs and restaurants are once again closed because of the pandemic. The only live music is out on the streets and many laid-off workers have the British Treasury to thank for covering much of their lost wages. Whether money will provide enough glue to hold the country together is one of the big questions. Surveys show that the entire nation is straining at the seams in a way not seen in decades. Elsa Henderson is a professor of political science at the University of Edinburgh. You've got a majority support for independence in Scotland. You've got rising support for independence in Wales. You've got polling on a United Ireland that is hitting over 50% in Northern Ireland. Polls have never shown this level of division in the United Kingdom. The next test for the union comes here in May. The Scottish National Party will try to use a strong showing to demand another independence vote and put the British government in a bind. It's very difficult if you're saying to an electorate how you express yourself peacefully and democratically at the ballot box. No matter what you say, it won't matter. But Henderson says Boris Johnson has been willing to make unpopular decisions like that before. He'd hope the problem will eventually just go away. Frank Langford, NPR News, Edinburgh. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Three tribal leaders cast their ballot as Arizona presidential electors Monday for Democrats Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. 
Governor Stephen Ra Lewis of the Gila River Indian Community, Chairman Ned Norris of the Tohono O'odham Nation, and President Jonathan Nez of the Navajo Nation. Arizona's 11 presidential electors met in Phoenix after taking an oath of office, signed the official certificate of vote for president and vice president. Governor Lewis, in a video message, expressed his pride taking part in what he called a historic event, reflecting on the election amid the pandemic, saying Native people made their voices known with voter turnout in tribal communities across the state. Lewis added, "He's excited to work with the Biden-Harris administration. Biden and Harris committed to Native Americans having a seat at the table during a meeting in October with tribal leaders in Phoenix." The new vice president of the Oglala Sioux Tribe is getting right to work. Alicia Musso was recently sworn into office with President Kevin Killer. They'll lead the South Dakota Tribe for the next two years. Richard Tubbles has more. Dr. Alicia Musso edged out former Ogallala Sioux Tribe president and founder of Lakota Nation Invitational Brian Brewer for the vice presidency. She will serve the tribe's almost 47,000 members across 2.1 million acres of land that consists of the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Musso grew up in Porcupine and earned her PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Wyoming. She ran on the platform of promoting science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. We know the importance of that. We know, you know, we have that those roots in our culture and community. But we need places for those people who want those careers to land. And I'm also a researcher myself, and I've navigated navigated that here and know the difficulties and how amazing it would be if we had our own research and training center where we were leading our own research and we were collaborating with outside entities. And I think that's a possibility during the pandemic. Musso says she has used her education to help Native Americans not only in Pine Ridge but natives across the country to address the myriad of social and health inequities they struggle with. Another goal as vice president is to not only continue that work, but to also find new ways to utilize her office for what the needs of the people are. The vice president position has been a sleeping giant of a position, right? There's a lot that can happen from this office. I know the constitution. We have our constitution, and I have my duties there. But there's a lot we can do, you know. And I'm a team player, so I'm excited to. To see what we can do, and especially my platform pieces, I ran on. I ran on those because I knew this—you know—you can do things with this office, and that would be helpful for the entire tribe. Musso says she appreciates the support and is excited to find solutions for the tribe to handle the current pandemic situation that will serve well into the future. In Rapid City, I'm Richard Tubbles. The Indian Health Service started initial distributions of COVID-19 vaccines Monday at IHS facilities. Two of the largest tribes in the United States received first doses of the Pfizer vaccine. The Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma and the Navajo Nation in the Four Corners region, and in Minnesota, healthcare workers at the Cass Lake Hospital on the Leech Lake Reservation were among some of the first to receive the vaccine in the state. The Bemidji Pioneer reports ten workers at the hospital were vaccinated. Tribal programs and urban centers have the option of receiving the vaccine from the Indian Health Service or states. The initial distribution is prioritizing. Healthcare workers and residents of long-term care facilities. I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. You're listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville, and this is the Tuesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. KVMR's news program airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. Coming up this evening at 6.30, we have Educationally Speaking, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Closing out today's newscast, we have Mark Cunaberti with a commentary. Welcome to another edition of Your Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Never in the decades of following economies and the markets have I witnessed such man-made damage foisted onto a world economy such as is occurring now. With a second complete economic shutdown now initiated in my home state of California due to spiking COVID cases, the expected fallout on American businesses is no doubt going to be even more catastrophic than first thought. I say man-made damage because although the COVID virus itself is an organic culprit, the decision to shut down is one of man. My initial forecast in March of this year was that somewhere around 25% of small businesses would be obliterated by the initial shutdowns. This second round will certainly increase that estimate by an unknown degree. From an economic standpoint, the shutdown is unprecedented. We have never had an instance where almost all businesses everywhere were either severely restricted or outright shuttered completely. The pushback from business owners is more pronounced this time around. Those business owners that have somehow survived the first prolonged shutdown now stand in disbelief as they are once again asked to close their doors and turn away much-needed revenue from would-be paying customers. The debate on whether shutdowns were the appropriate response to COVID is increasing as more and more businesses go under. The initial shutdown was never imagined to last as long as it did, and just when the country began to reopen, giving some hope to the surviving business owners, the winter season brings once again more restrictions. Adding insult to injury, it is the Christmas season that brings many businesses the majority of their annual revenue. At this point, the debate of whether the cure is worse than the disease is being voiced by more than a few people. Some argue COVID would bring about a more personal devastation in the form of death and disease should this second shutdown not be initiated, while others insist that to shut down again would cause massive personal and economic damage, which will far outweigh the misery the virus would ever cause on its own. The argument is not exclusively centered around the cold reality of death versus dollars, however. In an article posted in the Washington Post on September 24th, Entitled, The Pandemic Pushes Hundreds of Millions of People Towards Starvation and Poverty, David Beasley, the executive director of the UN's World Food Program, warned that a wave of hunger and famine still threatens to sweep across the globe and that he needs about $5 billion to prevent another 30 million people from dying of starvation. Adding to the argument is the fact that domestic violence, suicide, and mental issues presumed to be brought on by isolation are on the rise. Those three statistics come from the New York Times and WebMD.com, with the belief by some that the new restrictions are necessary to contain the worst outbreak since COVID's inception. 
Still others are questioning whether shutting down the economy has accomplished its goal of slowing the spread at all. If not, is another shutdown just one bad decision followed by yet another? Many claim the reason for the failure is not everyone following mask and distancing mandates. Still others say mandates will never be followed by everyone, and that the first shutdown was the best that could be expected, and that a second shutdown is a futile attempt at a failed methodology. This will only cause thousands of more businesses to go under and bring about another round of unnecessary human suffering. If there is any good news in all of this, it is that the Pfizer vaccine has been approved and it's on its way to distribution centers, with some people already getting vaccinated. It will be months, however, before the majority of Americans will have access to it, while some say they will refuse to take it no matter what. No matter what side of the argument one believes, the fact is that the economic damage and the amount of human suffering is beyond any comparisons. That said, there may be some good news on the horizon for those thinking of starting a business, despite the notion that the idea of hatching a new endeavor at this time seems far-fetched in the face of such a stark business environment. However, I'll touch on this unexpected suggestion next week on Money Matters. That's it for today's Money Matters. The views expressed are opinions only and not meant as investment advice or the opinion of this radio station and staff, management, or underwriters. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California Insurance License OL34249 and I'm a Medicare agent approved. My name's Mark Cunaberti. Thanks for listening. Well, that's our newscast for this evening. Next up, we have Educationally Speaking, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening.